You're listening to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn, a true crime podcast about murder and murdering. But we are not murderers. everybody we're back it has been a very long time months but the duo is back together that's right you get both (laughs) of us this time not just me drinking wine which was also entertaining don't get me wrong i enjoyed that episode plus I i thought that it was a really interesting one it was. It was. I really enjoyed it. I was I just really wanted, <laughs> I so badly wanted to find one that took place in a vineyard. And I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> it was perfect. I did not get any free wine in case anybody was wondering. I did not get free wine. If people would like to send me wine, that is completely fine. You just reach out via <laughs> info at murdernotmurdering.com. Yes. <laughs> All the wine. All the wine in all the towns. I'll take it. She's into it. Uh (laughs) Yep. How Um, have you been? It has been so long since we've been here. I have been great. It's really, really nice to be back. It's but it feels like it has literally been forever. I looked at our last recording and I think it was mid-November. Yes, it was. (laughs) Whoa. It just got the holidays this year were so hectic, and then you opened yeah. a restaurant, and then I'm managing in my position, and so we struggled to find time to research and write and record. Yeah. So now we're back, Life happens. and it feels so good, and it does. hopefully everyone's excited because I'm excited. Yes, and I have a fun update to mine. Ooh. Because mine is currently currently happening. Okay, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that is, that's my jam. I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> Although I do like the exciting. Unsolved Mysteries, but I've, I, w- I would love it if eventually all of them got solved. Yeah, of course. Well, that's the ultimate goal. And us as professional, unprofessional detectives, you know, hopefully we'll get the chance to solve a murder. I mean, you know that's on my bucket list. Yeah, in case any of you are wondering, I'm wearing a Sherlock Holmes hat and I'm smoking a pipe. It's been a long time and we may be a little rusty, but I'm coming in hot with a very familiar, very famous case. That's what you keep saying. And this is actually one of the first cases that I really got into. I read the book when I was younger. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. I mean, it wasn't during real time. It was many years after this happened because yeah. it, we were way too young to be in, letting our parents be in, let us be involved in watching this unfold. But yeah. I remember reading the book and I just, I have to tell this story. All righty. Let's get into it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I do want to say there's going to be a little bit of a trigger warning here that there is Talks of suicide, sexual assault, and murder. Okay. This is the story of Susan Smith. Around 9 p.m. on October 25th, 
1994, in Union County, South Carolina, 23-year-old wife and mother, Susan Smith, was found on the doorstep of a residence near John D. Lake. Distraught and crying, claiming that she had been carjacked by a black man that drove away with her two young boys, still strapped in their car seats in the backseat of her car. Susan told police that she was returning from Walmart and had been stopped at a traffic light at an empty intersection and that a black man in a knit cap and a plaid jacket pulled a gun on her and drove away with her car and her sons, three-year-old Michael and 14-month-old Alexander. For nine days, Susan would go on with dramatic pleas on national television for the safe return of her children. But everything wasn't as it seemed. Something much more sinister was going on, and the whole world was about to know who Susan Smith really was. Yeah, I remember this one. As soon as you started, uh, when you started talking about the boys, I was like, oh, shit. Yes. Tragic. Mm -hmm. Yes. Susan Lee Vaughn was born on September 26th, 1971 in Union, South Carolina, to parents Linda Sue Harrison and Harry Ray Vaughn. Her mother was a homemaker, and her father was a firefighter. She had a very unstable and traumatic childhood. Her parents had married when her father was 20 and her mother was 17 years old. Her mother was pregnant with a previous relationship's baby at the time of her marriage, giving birth to her older half-brother, Michael, and later her other brother, Scotty. Susan was Harry and Linda's only daughter and the youngest child. They raised Michael as if he was Harry's biological child. They had a tumultuous marriage fueled by Harry's alcoholism and his suspicions of Linda being unfaithful. The children Well, you can understand why he'd feel that way. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I mean. Chi- I mean, yes. Yeah. The children lived in fear, and it caused Susan's oldest brother, Michael, such stress and worry that he tried to commit suicide by hanging himself when Susan just started preschool. He received treatment at multiple medical facilities through Susan's childhood. Susan adored her father and was always happy to be around him. However, Linda ended the 17-year-long marriage in 1977 when Susan was six years old. This caused Harry to drink even heavier. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Five weeks after the divorce was finalized, on January 15, 1978, Harry committed suicide after he had a heated argument with Linda and the police were called. Oh, that's He shot himself. I know. It's super sad. Yeah. He shot himself in the abdomen and was rushed to the hospital and had emergency surgery, but he succumbed to his injuries. Harry was just 37 years old at the time of his death. Susan was devastated. Linda, Susan's mother, married Beverly Russell two weeks after her divorce from Susan's father, Harry. 
I'm sorry. Did you just say two weeks? Yes, ma'am. Whoa. All right. Very quick. No shame in the game, but right. Whoa. Very quick. Beverly, who everyone called Bev, was previously married and had several daughters with his first wife. Bev was a very successful businessman and was a South Carolina State Republican Executive Committee man and a member of the advisory board of the Christian Coalition. Of course Bev was. Yes, and of course Linda wanted that status. Yeah. Linda moved herself and her three children into Bev's three-bedroom home in a very exclusive neighborhood of Mount Vernon Estates in Union. Susan was a good student and was even voted friendliest female at Union High School her senior year in 1989. However, despite her doing well at school and seemingly to be liked by her peers, Susan was a troubled young girl and she was very depressed. She made a suicide attempt when she was 13 by overdosing with aspirin and Tylenol and spent a month in the hospital. Oh, poor girl. I know. It, this pattern, because her father and then her brother yeah. and then now her, it just seems That's so, so sad. It's, it's really sad. Like, men, mental health back then wasn't really understood no. the way it is now. I so, mean, shoot, mental health now tragic. is still struggling, but yes. Very true. Very true. But we've made a lot of movement. For whereas sure. Whereas back then it just wasn't the same. Yeah, absolutely. Somewhere around the age of 16, Susan was molested for the first time by her stepfather. Oh, my God. I know. And that part just is disgusting. And it's awful. Makes me so incredibly sad for her. Yeah. It continued for a year before Susan in 1988, at 17 years old, confided in her school counselor of the abuse and the counselor was obligated to bring this information to law enforcement and to Susan's mother, Linda. Bev was outraged and blamed Susan for spoiling their family name by making the abuse public and bringing the authorities into a private family matter. Are you kidding me? No. What a piece of and trash. Does that surprise you, though? No, <laughs> kind of but that's so, still so shitty. So shitty. It get, uh, unfortunately, it gets worse. I assume so. We're talking about murder. Yes. (laughs) Linda kicked him out of the marital home, but sadly, he eventually did return. Susan never pressed charges against him, influenced by her mother. Despite the best efforts of her caseworker, no charges were brought against Bev, and an agreement was reached that could never be made public. I hate that. Me too. In 1988, Susan started working at the local Winn-Dixie supermarket in Union. She started as a cashier, quickly moved up to becoming the head cashier within six months, and was promoted to the bookkeeper. It was here that Susan would start a secret relationship with a married co-worker, resulting in a pregnancy. Susan and the man did not want to keep the baby, and Susan made the difficult decision to have an abortion. Yeah. Susan started seeing another coworker simultaneously at the same time as the married coworker. Dang, and once, get it, Susan. I know. And once the married coworker got wind of this, he ended the relationship immediately. 
Apparently, it was only okay for him to have multiple partners. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's the standard. Yes. Welcome to the patriarchy. (laughs) Yes. Susan slipped into a deep depression after her breakup and made a second attempt at suicide in November of 1988 by taking aspirin and Tylenol. Poor girl. I know. It just honestly... Just the, like, cycle of everything for her, I just, I honestly feel for her at this time in her life. Yeah. Around this time, Susan had become close to a stock clerk named David Smith. Nothing romantic with this, (laughs) nothing romantic with this relationship yet, as Susan was juggling two men at the time. And David had a longtime girlfriend, Christy Jennings. Susan returned to the Winn-Dixie about a month after her attempt. And it was at this time that David ended his relationship with Christy and him and Susan started dating. They had bonded over both being very unhappy with their childhoods and family lives. David and Susan's relationship turned serious very quickly And they were married in 1991 and also welcomed their first child together the same year, Michael Daniel Smith, who was born on October 10th, 1991. David and Susan had a very rocky relationship filled with mutual infidelity and they separated several times. While they both had a lot in common, they also came from different worlds. David was raised in the country, and Susan was raised in the city. David also became Susan's supervisor at Winn-Dixie, and this caused additional tension for the married couple. Honestly, I don't know how I would do if Dustin became my supervisor. (laughs) Oh, I'd be a nightmare. I'd be a goddamn nightmare. (laughs) Don't tell tell me what to do. Do not tell me what to do. Excuse me? You didn't put the dishes in the dishwasher last night. Don't come for me, Josh. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) I could only see how that would create even more tension if they're already volatile. David and Susan earned a decent living, but Susan always wanted more. She would constantly borrow money from her mother, Linda, and stepfather, Bev. This didn't come without a price, however. Her mother felt that she could dictate their marriage and how they lived and raised their children, which angered David. And Susan would almost always listen to her mother. By their third year of marriage, the couple had separated several times and Susan moved out of their home and started seeing an ex-boyfriend. This didn't go over well with David, as you can imagine. David and Susan started seeing each other again, and in November of 1992, Susan found out that she was pregnant with their second child. Her and David decided to give their marriage another try, and she moved back in December of 1992. At this time, they were living with David's family, and Susan told him that the only way she thought that they could make this work for real was if they got a home of their own. They bought a 1,500-square-foot, one-bath, one-bedroom home at 407 Tony Road in Union, South Carolina. Get this, 
with a down payment gifted to them from Susan's parents. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. As you can probably guess, this didn't help improve their marriage. Yeah. Susan had a really tough pregnancy. <laughs> having having children will never solve marital issues. FYI. No. Everyone out there, that's a major red flag. Go to therapy. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And buying a house isn't solving your marriage issues either. <laughs> no, nothing solving your marriage issues except for you if you are ready for it. 100%. Susan had a really tough pregnancy, both physically and mentally. She would constantly complain about being fat and ugly and really shut down emotionally from David. David said that he felt lonely and abandoned by Susan during this time. Oh, no. And he started emotionally connecting to a cashier at the Winn-Dixie that him and Susan both worked at, Tiffany okay. Moss. So an, an emotional affair. Yes. Yes. For that moment. <laughs> okay. This was very upsetting to Susan and didn't help her mental state and their marriage continued to suffer. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean – the both of them are pretty awful to each other. They well, just no, they're really, both bad. They are both so bad. toxic. It's it's sad. That Very toxic. Looking out in at this moment, we're like, wow, that shouldn't have continued. But the two yeah. of them were in this toxic cycle together. Very much that. Susan gave birth to their second son, Alexander Tyler Smith, on August fifth, nineteen ninety three, via C section. The couple decided to put their differences aside and really tried to give their marriage another shot for the well-being of their children. They were happy and focusing on their children for about three weeks before trouble started to resurface. And David and sure. Susan felt- I mean, again, nothing's <laughs> going to solve anything with a baby. No. You're just more no. tired and not going to get to shit. Yes. And you have a three-year-old on top of that. Yeah, no, and everything's going to get chaotic right, real, real quick. Real quick. And David and Susan felt that they needed to end their relationship again. Again. Mm-hmm. They agreed to put their children's need first and wanted to try amicably co-parenting. At this time, Susan decided to make a career change. She left her job at Winn-Dixie, where David was her supervisor, and his current girlfriend, Tiffany Moss, worked and started a new job at Conso Products as a bookkeeper. I think that's probably best. Yes. She was quickly promoted there to executive secretary for J. Carey Finley, the president and CEO of Conso. Mr. Finley was a c- accountant from Char- blah, blah, blah. Mr. Finley was a accountant from Charlotte, North Carolina and had originally purchased Conso Products in 1986 with a group of investors, and his goal was to turn around and sell it and make a quick profit. However, he fell in love with the company and the town and bought out his investment partners and decided to keep the business and run it himself. And in November of 1993, Conso Products became the first publicly owned corporation in Union. And by the end of 1993, they had factories in Canada, Mexico, and the United Kingdom. Mr. Finley had settled into Union and was very successful. 
Susan was thriving at Conso. Her job duties included making ho- hotel reservations for visiting clients and making sure their needs were met and they had a pleasant experience. She also arranged Mr. Finley's travel. Mr. Finlay had three sons, one of which, Tom Finlay, worked at Conso as the head of the graphic arts department. Tom had graduated from Auburn University in 1990 and was a young, single, wealthy man. And as you can guess, was very I can popular. can see it coming. Yeah. <laughs> he was very popular among the women in Union and especially at Conso. During her separation from David in January of 1994, Susan set her sights on Tom Finlay and they started dating. They would meet for lunches and went to the movies together, and Susan accompanied Tom to a few parties thrown by Mr. Finlay on the Finlay estate. So she's feeling super excited. She's seeing this successful man. Very good for her, you know, like going from this toxic relationship, she thinks she's moving in this positive direction. Yeah. However, the summer of 1994, David and Susan gave their marriage one last try. You're kidding me. (laughs) No. And Susan broke things off with Tom. Their reconciliation was short-lived. And by July of 1994, they realized that their marriage was never going to work and agreed to move forward with a divorce. David was extremely disappointed. He always felt that they needed to make the marriage work for the sake of their boys but realized that they would never be able to make it work and the best decision would be for them to divorce and move on. Susan turned back to Tom and was excited for the first time in a very long time, hopeful about their relationship and started planning her future with Tom without discussing it with Tom first. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. I know. Tom pulled back and realized that Susan was looking for him, something more than Tom was willing to give. Yeah. I I just picture her, like, writing her name in the diary with his last name or something. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh. kind of what I'm picturing, too. Sure. So he wrote her a Dear John-type letter to end their relationship. Gross. Just I'm, do it in person like a normal human. together, Aaron. Well, so what? They and could talk no, on the I mean, phone, anything. They honestly, see each other all the time. They work together. So you're going to write a letter? <laughs> like, I broke up with you on a post-it. Right. That's what that is. Honestly, I found that to be very, very annoying in my opinion. You work together. Be a man. Step up. Break up with her in just, person. Just fucking do Why it. Why are you giving her a Dear John letter? <laughs> hate that. Me too. A few little pieces from that letter. Just some highlights. He stated... You will, without a doubt, make some lucky man a great wife. But unfortunately, it won't be me. Susan, I could really fall for you. You have some endearing qualities about you. And I think that you are a terrific person. But like I have told you before, there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children. Susan wasn't fully convinced that the relationship between her and Tom was really over. And she went to her attorney a few days later after receiving the letter from Tom 
and filed divorce paperwork with the court on September 21st, 1994. She had David serve the papers, and they stated that Susan was seeking divorce on a grounds of adultery. Which, honestly, which part? Like, you, him? <laughs> I mean, for real, they based their whole relationship on cheating on each other. Yes, they were never faithful to either party. No. On October 23rd, 1994, two days before the carjacking, Susan visited Tom at his cottage to try to convince him not to end their relationship and to give them another chance together. She opened up to him about her stepfather's abuse towards her. While Susan thought this might bring some sympathy from Tom, it had the opposite effect on him. He let her know that he hadn't changed his mind and Susan left heartbroken. Mm. However, Susan was not giving up on Tom, as she was fixated at, on him at this point. Oh, Susan. I know. Poor girl. Honestly. It, it's So everything, honestly, is just one tragic event after another. Bringing this full circle to the day of the carjacking. On October 25th, 1994, she dropped her children off at daycare, and she went into work. Around 2.30 p.m. that day, she called Tom and asked him if he could go on a walk to talk with her. She was desperate for him to connect with her and continue their relationship. She confided to Tom that David had plans to disclose some very damaging information about her at their divorce hearings. Curious, Tom wanted to know what that information was that David could possibly be threatening Susan with. And Susan let him know that David was planning on accusing her of committing fraud with the IRS and having an affair with Mr. Finley, Tom's father. This shocked Tom, and he knew he had to make it very clear to Susan at this point his intentions with their relationship. He told her that the intimate relationship between them would need to stop forever and that they could remain friends. Only friends. Susan was in extreme distress at this news, and later that evening, around 4.30 p.m., she went back to Tom's office at Conso and tried to return his Auburn University sweatshirt, but he insisted that she should keep that, which, honestly, I kind of think she just was looking for another excuse to be in Yeah, she just wanted to get in that office, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Susan left Conso and went to the daycare to pick up her sons and went to Hickory Nets which is the only bar and restaurant in town. Okay, and I was going to say, I was like, I have no idea what the hell I know, is. I didn't, I had to look it up, to be honest. And she ran into a coworker named Sue Brown. She was the marketing manager at Conso. Susan started telling Sue all that was transpiring between her and Tom and begged her to come back to Conso with her so that Sue could watch her children while she went to apologize to Tom for the false allegations that she slept with his father. Sue reluctantly agreed. This meeting did not go as Susan had thought it would go in her mind. Tom was... Uh, No. (laughs) I know. Like, girl, I just wish that friend of hers or that coworker would have just been like, no. No. No, No, Susan. Yes. (laughs) Tom was not happy to see Susan at all, and he had quickly escorted her out of the office. Susan returned to the car and told Sue that she was going to just end it. 
Sue wasn't clear what she meant by that comment, but didn't ask for for, for clarification as she was eager yeah. to get back to her car and out of the car with Susan. I'm sure. Susan dropped. That's a lot to take Yes. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I would well, be super uncomfortable. I would also assume at that point that she's talking about the relationship, not necessarily her life. And I'm If you not don't know sure. her well, you know? Yes. Like, I would, if I would assume, I would assume that she meant the relationship. But yeah. knowing the history of Susan. Sure. No, knowing the history is different. I just I'm feel like, I feel like in that. Yeah. Otherwise. Yeah. Susan dropped Sue back off at Hickory Nut around 6 p.m. and went home. Later on that evening, Sue Brown was dining at Hickory Nuts with some friends and Tom Finlay when a waiter brought over a cordless phone and told Sue that the call was for her. On the other end was Susan Smith. This woman was desperate at this point. She asked Sue if Tom had been talking about her or asked about her, and Sue truthfully let her know that he had not. At the table? At the table, Erin. Jesus. She's just frantic at this point. Yeah, she's spiraling quick. Around 8 p.m., Susan got her boys dressed and ready to take them to town, saying that she had never felt more lonely and hurt before in her life with everything going on with Tom. Susan was found on the doorsteps around 9 p.m., asking for for the neighbor to call the police and that she had just been carjacked with her little boys still inside the car. A nationwide search was put into motion for Michael and Alexander and for nine Yeah, days, I remember this. It was huge. Like, I remember seeing everywhere. it all over the news. All over the yes. news. I can, like, like, the moment you mentioned uh, the beginning of this case, I could picture those boys in their, in their little blue outfits and the bowl cut and the whole thing, like, right away. Because it was everywhere. Everywhere. A nationwide search was put into motion for Michael and Alexander. And for nine days, Susan was pleading on national television for a safe return. And David over and Smith, over again, crying mm-hmm. over and over and, again. And David Smith was standing beside her. Mm-hmm. On November 3rd, 1994, after, t- after taking and failing a few polygraph tests, And changing up her story, Susan buckled under the pressure and confessed to taking her car to John D. Long Lake and letting her car roll into the nearby lake with her children still inside, drowning them. She said she had no motivation and that the murders were not planned and that she was not in the right state of mind. Now, I agree that she was not in the right state of mind. However, yes, I'm I think everyone can agree on that. If it wasn't planned, because Tom had just told her that he would love to be with her, but his biggest obstacle was her children. Yeah, I feel and, like there's there's like some thinking it out. You know, maybe yes. not full on plan, but like some possible some ideas. Yeah, and in the interrogation room when they were asking her questions about the carjacking. The only thing Susan was asking about was Tom and if she could call Tom. Mm. Obviously, this was setting off red flags right away for detectives. Yeah, of course. It was revealed that detectives had never believed Susan's story from the beginning. 
and had a suspicion that she had murdered her children. On the second day of the investigation, police suspected that Susan was aware of where they were and were holding out a glimpse of hope that they were still alive. They searched bodies of water trying to locate the vehicle and had even searched John D. Long Lake, but only out 30 feet as they didn't think it would be much further than that if there was a vehicle in the water. After Susan confessed and they went to recover the vehicle, it was found 122 feet from the shore. The biggest break in the case and what made them certain that she was not being truthful from the beginning was that she had claimed that the traffic light had turned red, causing her to stop at an otherwise empty intersection. However, it was determined that the light would not have turned red for her unless a vehicle was present on the intersecting road. And this conflicted Mm -hmm. her statement that she did not see any other cars there when the hijacking took place. Yeah. In 1995, David Breck and Judy Clark served as co-counsel for Smith. In their opening statement, Clark argued Susan was deeply troubled and experienced severe depression. Clark told the jury, this is not a case about evil. This is a case about despair and sadness. The defense's theory of the case was that, Su- was that Susan drove to the edge of the lake to kill herself and her two boys, but her body willed itself out of the car. The prosecution, on the other hand, believed she murdered her sons in order to start a new life with her former lover. Agreed. I have to say I agree. It took the jury only two and a half hours to convict her of murdering them. During the penalty phase, Tommy Pope, the lead prosecutor in the Smith case, argued passionately in favor of sentencing Smith to death. The jury ultimately voted against imposing the death penalty. Yeah, I, I remember. I also remember seeing that um, play out in on TV where they talked mm-hmm. about it was like a hot topic of whether or not she deserved the death penalty. Yes. And Susan's defense psychiatrist diagnosed her with a dependent personality disorder and major depression. On July 27, 1995, Susan Smith was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison with eligibility to seek parole after 30 years. The jury rejected prosecution's appeal for the death penalty. David Smith spoke out after the verdict and stated that he would respect their decision, but did not agree with it. He stated that he believed that Susan should receive the death penalty and that he will be at every and any parole hearing to make sure that the life imprisonment would extend to her whole life. Yeah. Well, I mean, she took his kids away. Yes. Mm -hmm. David and Susan's divorce was finalized in 1995. Smith was incarcerated in the Administrative Segregation Unit in the Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. During Susan's incarceration at the Camille Griffin Graham Correctional Institution, two correctional officers, Lieutenant Houston Cagle and Captain Alfred R. Rowe Jr., were charged after having sex with her. Yeah, I remember this. Yes. I remember this. Is it was on the news? Oh, man. Yes. Consequently, she was moved to the Leith Correctional Institute in Greenwood. And both of those yeah. officers were fired. Yeah. She will be eligible for parole 
in November of 2024. Oh, not that far away. My sources were Wikipedia, LawyersUpdate.com, The Washington Post, the book Beyond All Reason, My Life with Susan Smith by David Smith and NBC News. Dang. I One thing I wanted to point out, though, is the fact that she's a toxic, racist person for putting out there that it was a black man that was, was the person that carjacked her. <laughs> Absolutely. like, what she was profiling. Fuck? She knew that she could yeah. say something like that, especially back then. In the 90s. Yes. Yeah. And it's just sickening and yeah, disgusting. Yeah, of course, because now you made targets of all of these black people that are now being followed or watched or yes. any of that. And they didn't so deserve that. So fucked up. They, they didn't no. deserve that. She, you Absolutely did this, not. Susan. And. You know, I I kind of thought about this case because there's been some recent cases in the news about women with postpartum depression, like killing their children. Yeah. And yeah. in my opinion, I don't think that this is the same. I think that she was love struck and desperate for this man to yeah. love her and he didn't want children. And she thought, no problem. This is how I solve it. Yes. Yeah. She wasn't, you know, she was a, she was a deeply flawed person with, or is a deeply flawed. Yeah. She's, she's got years and years of abuse and, and none of this excuses what she did at all. But, you know, it's, it's important to acknowledge the fact that there's like some severe mental health issues going on and that she's just, she was looking for love so desperate for it that she did that to the two people that would probably love her her unconditionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so tragic. It's really sad. I mean, there's so, there's so much more in that I could have gone into detail with, but it just would have been like an eight hour podcast. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a a whole book, you know, Mm -hmm. there's plenty of more information. There's several books. Her mother also wrote a book, which I did not read. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not read her mother's book. No, because her mom's kind of a garbage person. Yes. Her mother is very much a garbage person. So I didn't support that book. (laughs) Sure. All right, so we're going to – okay, so we're going to take a quick break, and then we will be back in a few minutes with my case. We'll see you soon. And we are back. Um, whoop, whoop. Whoop, That's us. Whooping it up. <laughs> um, okay, well, I think I'm just going to jump right in. So I am doing a also semi-famous case. Um, Ooh. Mm-hmm. It is very, very local to me, um, and I remember when it happened because my husband and I had just gotten food at Marination on Alki Beach. Uh, I got a notification that the West Seattle blog said that there were suitcases found on the beach. So I'm going to start now, but that, that was like, oh my God, I remember driving by when all of this went down. Okay. So this is the story of Michael Lee Dudley. And again, we're going to have to do another trigger warning because my case does talk about abuse and sexual abuse later on in the case. Um, and this is the TikTok murders, uh, the murders of Austin Wenner and Jessica Lewis. Oh, I've heard of this, but I don't know it. I didn't know all the details. I I mean, I knew of it because it was like very, very local to me. But oh my God, Autumn, it's crazy. 
I'm excited. So it's an 80-degree sunny day on June 19th, 2020. A group of teenagers head to Alki Beach in Seattle, Washington to make TikTok videos using the exploration app Randonautica, which is an app that gives the user random coordinates and enables them to explore their local area and report their findings. Kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing, but you have to set your intentions. So what that means is everything is random, but some of the suggested intentions would be like, I want to find water or waterfalls or peace or beauty, something new, and then things like scare me and I want to feel afraid. And and the thing is, I think that some of these people that do the Randonautica, I think it's like a placebo. Like they think that this is what they want to feel and they're going to find it however they want to do it, you know? Like one person said that they set their intention as the word dog and they ended up finding a stray dog that day that they took home. That's a coincidence in my opinion. I don't think any of this is, there's nobody planning anything. Like someone said, I want to feel scared and they were taken to an empty cornfield at night, you know, things like that. I don't believe that it's, nothing is planned out because these, the, it's random, you know? Right. Anyway, if you want to find something bad enough, you're going to find it in whatever way you, you want to see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Alki Beach is a mostly sandy beach with rocky walls that the Puget Sound will crash upon. The teens were recording when they found a suitcase lodged in some rocks near the shore. Curious, they approach it, documenting it on their phones. They thought it may have been part of the adventure from the app, but the smell was putrid and overwhelming with decay. Oh, no. The teens laughed and joked as they decided to open it, thinking it contained rotten food. Inside was a black plastic garbage bag. The smell worsened. Now they become more serious and worried. They called the Seattle police on 911 and told them, They found a suitcase, and they were pretty sure a dead body or some kind of meat products were in them. When the police arrived, the worst-case scenario played out. It was indeed the dismembered remains of two bodies contained within the garbage bags. Police were also able to recover a second bag in the water, also containing dismembered remains. Now, this is a crime scene. The TikTok of their discovery went viral with over 30 million views, and TikTok came under fire after refusing to take down the gruesome recording. The video was ultimately deleted after several months after family members of the victims demanded that it be removed. But the video is still everywhere. It's frustrating that it wasn't taken down right away, but they said it didn't violate any of their policies. The original poster didn't take it down either, which is pretty fucking shitty. Absolutely. They didn't show any of the bodies or body parts, just the discovery of the bag and opening it, and you see the black plastic inside. I think that's why it wasn't taken down, because they were well aware this had to do with a homicide, but there wasn't anything that they were seeing that was inappropriate. We all just know there were bodies in those bags. Jesus. To this day, we don't know if the creator... Or TikTok actually removed it. 
Three days after the Alki beach bags were retrieved, police discovered a third bag containing more remains on West Marginal Place near the Seattle City Light Power substation. Clearly, whoever did this was trying to spread them out in different bodies of water to hide what they had done. Mm, That makes sense. The victims were identified as Jessica Lewis, 35, and her boyfriend, Austin Wenner, 27. Forensic found that Jessica had been shot seven times and Austin once. Jessica and Austin had been dating for eight years at the time of their death. Oh, man. Austin was known to his friends by the nickname Cash Money, and most of the people around him called him Cash. He was born and raised in Kent, Washington, and he had one child from a previous relationship. They were both described as good-hearted people. Jessica was born in Maple Valley and was described as a caring person. She worked at a home for developmentally disabled adults. She was also a mother of four from previous relationships. At the time Okay, of so together they had five kids? Correct. Between the two of them? Yes. Okay. At the time of their murders, they lived in Burien, Washington on Ambaum Boulevard. Their landlord was 62-year-old Michael Lee Dudley. He rented a room to them for $1,500 a month. Michael also lived in the house. Disputes began between the landlord and the renters when they began to get behind in their rent payments. And Michael claimed that Jessica and Austin were bringing criminal activity to the house. There is no tangible evidence supporting this, but there's been many witnesses and folks close to them who have said that they had been involved in drug use or distribution. Also, there had been reports that Austin was having issues with the local Samoan community in in the area over something to do with COVID-19 relief cards or checks. They also said that Austin had stolen some cars from Samoans as well. Again, none of this has been substantiated and it's all hearsay, but in my opinion, it seems like they were doing something shady at some point. Mm -hmm. Because so many people that were close to them, family members, um, other members of the community, all said that they were up to some stuff. So, and very much this issue with the Samoan community, which yes. we have a pretty we have a pretty yes. large Samoan community here in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. According to the courtroom affidavit, a witness said that Austin had told them he had quote pissed off the wrong Samoan and received a bullet with his name on it in the mail at his house. Something, right? Something was clearly up. Austin's aunt also confirmed that this happened. On the day they were believed to be murdered, June 9th, the couple were at a parent's home when they were helping with some yard work in hopes of making some extra money, and they seemed very shaken up that day. They said someone had broken into their rented room with guns and threatened them. They did not report this to authorities. They did not report this to the authorities. But later that night, neighbors called the police because they heard yelling coming from the house on Ambaum and several gunshots. Oh, my God. (laughs) When the police arrived, Dudley did not answer the door, and it appeared that no one was home. 
One person said they could hear someone pleading, saying, just let me leave. Please don't do this. And 10 days later, their bodies were found. The police officers just left because no one answered the door and the whole place was blacked out. So they left. So they didn't. Okay. I have a lot of feelings about that, but it is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Once investigators had traced them back to the Burien home and obtaining a search warrant, police inspected the house where the three had lived and discovered bullet holes in the wall, blood in the couple's room, and a fresh coat of paint. They found two bullet holes in furniture that was repaired using plumber's epoxy, and the bottle was found on Dudley's dresser. During an interview, Dudley allegedly told investigators that Jessica had somehow managed to cut herself, and that's why there's blood in the house. But police say... Yeah. (laughs) But police say that he never could account for why there were bullet holes in the house and the furniture. He was arrested immediately following the interrogation. The charging documents stated, While the precise motive for this crime is not fully not yet fully known, the evidence to date shows the defendant was angry with the victims for not paying rent and for bringing potential crime activity to the Ambaum house. The defendant, likely with the aid of others, dismembered the two victims' bodies after he killed them, separated their bodies into multiple bags and suitcases, and tried to hide them in different bodies of water. This process would have taken a lot of time and effort. And his willingness to take these extreme steps demonstrates the threat he poses to the community. Now, remember, it was 10 days before they found the bodies. So he had 10 days to clean his house. Yeah, that's a long time. It's a long time. You can get one of those UV or whatever they are, the black lights. I mean, you would have time to, like, figure out how to professionally clean that shit. You know, I'm just saying. Absolutely. That's a long time. It's a long time. Forensic anthropologist Kathy Taylor said that Michael had to have had help with the murders. There were cuts all over the bodies that were disorganized and used different tools in different manners. I have covered many dismemberment cases, and I have mentioned before it's very difficult to dismember a body and super hard to do. You have to have a very clear sense of anatomy as well as strength because it's it's not easy, right? It takes a lot no. of effort. Absolutely. Could he have, the question is, could he have done this on his own? Maybe, but we'll never know. Now, a few other things to note is that some grass was found in Jessica's mouth and animal feathers were found on the bodies. Mr. Dudley did keep chickens, and this leads me to believe that he moved them for the dismemberment process and didn't probably Mm. didn't dismember them in the house. That would make a lot of sense. It would get pretty messy in there. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to get rid of, like, blood is organic. So if you did it outside in, you know, dirt, it's easier to get rid of. Yes. No fun facts, no tips, just saying. (laughs) Anyway. Also, three, three nights later after he was arrested, the police were called to his property because three people were trespassing, trying to tow a car. 
I don't have any information on that, but it is suspicious behavior, and it makes you wonder if they might have been involved. Some people speculated that perhaps he moved the bodies in that car and people were coming to cover it up. Oh, that's a good possibility. Yeah. A female friend of Dudley's was interviewed by police, and it turns out she actually moved into Jessica and Austin's room the night of the murders. Oh my, what are the odds? When she walked, he, apparently he had, he had promised her that room, and she showed up on the porch ready to go. When she walked into the room, there was a pile of clothes in the middle of the floor, and she said she saw a bloodied hand sticking out of the laundry. What? She also said that when she arrived, she noticed Dudley's glasses were broke and what she assumed to be defensive wounds and scratches all over him. Oh, he man. told, Yeah, but she stayed, dude. I know. I was about to say, if she stayed, why? A hand? I would I not know. be staying. <laughs> he then told her that the room wasn't ready for her yet and that he would take her somewhere else. Before they left, he went down to the basement and laid out sheets of plastic on the ground. She jokingly asked what had happened. And he said, let's put it this way. His gun misfired. Mine didn't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. In an affidavit, another person told police that she went to the house and noticed plastic trash bags in the back of his trunk that smelled foul and that she had inquired about where jessica and austin were and he told her you won't have to worry about them anymore jessica's father stopped by to check on her and dudley said that they had moved out but his but her father saw some of their clothes and belongings there that he said they wouldn't have left behind so he started and why wouldn't they suspicious. have told him yeah exactly Cell phone tower records show that Jessica's text messages stopped the day of the suspected murders. Also, Dudley's phone shows him around Alki Beach and the Duwamish Head, as well as at the home the night of the murders. Now, Michael Lee Dudley has a very dark and awful past. His daughter filed sexual assault charges and a restraining order against him in June 2018 citing sexual abuse and incest it was filed in the pierce county superior court and the document accused dudley of sexually assaulting his daughter for nearly a decade he sexually assaulted me for nine years from the age of 10 until 18 in 2007 by drugging me and raping me she alleged forcing me to share a bed with him from age 10 and making me watch him masturbate while he watched pornography. She also said that she never felt safe in the home or at work because he would regularly take his gun out to intimidate her. Oh my God. The court Awful. is going to, you're going to get mad. The court rejected his daughter's request for a restraining order saying that the allegations didn't mean meet the definition of a sexual assault petition and that the what? allegations actually fell under domestic violence. So they wanted oh her God. to file in a different way. And they said because she didn't live with him anymore, she most likely wouldn't get it. How frustrating wow. is that? That's our connection, though. <laughs> our system is fucked. Yes. So Jessica's Aunt Gina 
said that she was really close with her niece before she died and that the daughter's allegations made sense based on everything she had heard from Jessica. She told the West Side Seattle sometimes he would break into their car so they couldn't leave. He put trackers on people's cars, and any time he got into a dispute with anybody, he would tell them to leave but try to lock them in the house. Oh, my he, God. He killed the do- their dog in front of them and left the carcass outside for three days to scare them. They had nowhere to go, and that's why they stayed there. He's a freaking psycho, she said. She went on wow. to say once there was an electrician guy who was working for him, and they had a falling out, and he was trying to tell the guy to leave, but he wouldn't let him leave. He threatened him with a gun, and 911 was called. Michael Dudley's ex-girlfriend in 2016 said he violently assaulted her and that he was arrested and charged with assault. Later, she said that even though she didn't believe he could do something like that, referring to the murders, there was still an evil side to Michael. She said that she once fell victim of a violent attack when he assaulted her. She shared how he hit her, threw her on the floor, hit her head on the patio, and even held a gun in his hand and pointed it at her. So he has a very long history of violence and guns. Dudley was arrested and charged with second-degree murder for Jessica and Austin. A bail hearing in a King County Superior Court was held March 3rd, 2021 for Michael Lee Dudley. And you're going to get more mad. Oh, my God. (laughs) Dudley's defense attorney, Bradley Bradley G. Barshis, and Henry Steinmetz, with the Newton and Hall Attorneys at Law in Kent, Washington, requested that the current $5 million bail was reduced down to $500,000 to enable his release from jail, but to be put on electronic detention in his home. Prosecuting attorney Mary Barbosa argued that the horror of the crime, specifically the fact that the bodies were dismembered and not all of the body parts were recovered, plus the cell tower evidence, is consistent with Mr. Dudley being home at the time of the crime, mitigated against the bail reduction and permitting Mr. Dudley to stay in potential home detention. The judge denied this request of home detention because he was suspected of murdering and dismembering two people. Like, what the fuck? (laughs) I know. I'm just over here with my mouth open. Dudley's defense team argued that he had been held for six months and the state of Washington had not completed its discovery of evidence. And and Mr. Dudley was being treated unfairly and should get reduced bail. Yeah. Okay. They presented 11 letters attesting to Mr. Dudley's good reputation, the attorneys said. They noted that he has taken people, taken in people and helped people. He even flew to California when there was a need for people to help with wildfires. So I guess you should be allowed to, like, stay at your house and be comfortable even though you murdered two fucking people. Ugh. Right. Seems seems like a good answer. Good right. Good plan. At the hearing, Dudley's sister, Lisa Green, spoke on his behalf, saying that he's a generous, caring, and compassionate person, and 
that's what la landed him here in this courtroom because he was so nice to them. <laughs> Not kidding. I have then, no words. Then Jessica's aunt spoke and said this. I am Jessica Lewis's aunt. I'd like to make a statement on behalf of my family. Medical examiners concluded that one person had helped assist in the disposal of my niece and her boyfriend. To date, no one else has been charged except Mike Dudley. The week he was arrested, someone contacted me. They were crying and absolutely petrified that Mike Dudley was going to get out of jail and come kill them. I convinced them to contact detectives on the case. Mike Dudley's affluent family has already tried to sell his house as an undisclosed location where, where less than four months prior, the scene was of these horrific murders. They were doing that to help him make bail. He okay. has family in close ties to California, and upon his arrest, an ex-girlfriend voiced her concerns of him getting out of jail as he was, quote, well-connected. Besides the safety and possible intimidation of potential witnesses and accomplices, he has a history of telling others how he wants to kill his neighbors or other people, and it should be Jesus. enough. Mm -hmm, <laughs> it should be enough to make sure he is not released into the community as there are too many uncertainties needing to be addressed before the truth of whom or how many others indeed helped him carry out these horrific crimes. Most of all, it's for my family's sake and her children's sake that the man remain in jail. He already has bestowed so much pain and sorrow to my family and to Austin's family and even his own family. Please don't risk another family becoming victims for the sake of Mike Dudley's accounts of fairness, as it is not fair that he took two young lives away, scarring and forever hurting everyone who knew and loved Jessica and Austin. There are reasons why people are scared to death of this man, possibly more afraid of him and what he's capable of than telling the truth to police. Thank you for your consideration. Oh my god <laughs> i know it's heartbreaking like, and, absolutely and i completely understand her concern that she that he could get out of there and he could kill other witnesses or he could coerce uh different stories from people i mean he could do harm to himself he could do anything mm -hmm. or or he's also a flight risk to go because yes. he's well connected and he's got family in california he, he's a flight risk so it totally makes sense that's and a he, good point. And again, he was denied. It's The whole thing is very heartbreaking. The trial went on and Michael E. Dudley was found guilty of murder on Thursday, December 8th, 2022, of two counts of second-degree murder. I'm so grateful justice was done and the world is a safer place without Michael Dudley in it, Austin's mother, Charlene Crians, said, outside of the courtroom. Obviously, we'll never be completely healed, but our family won't let Michael Dudley take away our lives, too. Wow. I know. Gina, Jessica's aunt, called Dudley a master manipulator and said she was grateful to the Seattle police detectives and the King County Sheriff's deputies who pieced the case together. I knew in my heart he was guilty from the very beginning, she said. I'm so glad it is over. 
During closing arguments, Deputy Prosecutor Raymond Lee conceded that aside from the victim's remains, which showed Jessica Lewis and Austin Wenner had been fatally shot, all of the state's evidence against Dudley were circumstantial. Police never found the gun used in the killings, and only a small smudge of Jessica's blood was found in the bedroom, where investigators think the couple's remains might have been dismembered. But keep in mind, like I said before, he had 10, oh wait, by the time he was arrested, which was August 19th, 2020, he had two months and 10 days to clean up his home. Not 10 days. He had two months and 10 days to clean the home. Oh my God. Plenty of time to make these murders happen and make them disappear in his house. The jury also found Dudley guilty of being armed with a gun at the time of the murders, which would add an additional 10 years to his prison term. He is set. Good. He can use as much time as this man well, can Well, listen get. to this, Autumn. Monster. So he is set to be sentenced March 10th, 2023, which is tomorrow, and we will be adding an update online as soon as it comes in. He is facing... I'm so excited to hear what it comes out to be. He's facing life without parole, and hopefully he gets it because he fucking deserves it. Absolutely. Jessica's aunt said at the trial, after he was found guilty, Jessica's children are thankful that this monster can no longer hurt anyone else. My sources were the Seattle Times, the Kent Reporter, Westside Seattle, the New York Post, Medium.com, and the podcast Morbid. So one thing I wanted to mention, I know, and I cannot wait to find out what he's sentenced tomorrow. And he has, he's not allowed to have a gun. And so they, no matter what, will add 10 more years, but he's probably going to get life. I hope so. So one thing that people kept talking about on the, on the morbid podcast and a few other things was the insane cost of the renting of the room. It was Mm -hmm. $1,500 a month. And the average rent for an apartment in Seattle is $2,300. The cost of living here is high. And Seattle's ranked one of the top 10 most expensive cities to live in. So keep, in, keep that in mind. We have, uh, we have the highest minimum wage as of January in the country. You know, and we have a super robust economy. It, not to say we don't have a lot of issues with poverty and unhomed people, but that's for another podcast. I just wanted to give a little background because it was so heavily talked about in the other podcasts about how crazy it was that it would be $1,500 a month for a room. But it's not just a room. It's full access to the house and kitchen and laundry and all of that. And it's really right. not that bad. But no, I just thought it was not. funny that everyone was like, oh, my God, that's insane. It's seriously like one of the smallest side stories, but they were saying, you know, a lot of people were saying, well, the cost was so high. No wonder why they couldn't meet the cost and was getting behind in their rent. Right. I don't. It's just not that here. It's not that crazy for us here, but more so, I think, I do think they were into some shady shit and that's why he was upset. Like, not substantiate, not okay that he was upset about whatever was going on, but you just follow an eviction process. You don't fucking dismember people. 100%. Like, 100%. It's crazy. It's crazy. And I, I didn't know a lot of the details. I didn't even know they found a third bag. No, I knew and of I the didn't two even know this story, which is weird because it was local and I had no clue. I had well, never it's, heard it's of it. It's still pretty fucking new. I mean, it happened 2020. 
you know? Yeah. So anyway, we will be updating you via our Instagram. Instagram. So Which if you don't us. follow, yeah, definitely follow us on there because we will do an update on it. And I might even go on and do like a little video update just to let you guys know what's going on with um, Michael Dudley and his sentencing. I mean, he's convicted, so don't worry about that. But what are they going to do with him now? Right. He killed two people <laughs> and dismembered them. I, I need to know. He's getting life, but we will yes. update you. Don't you worry. We anyway, will. we're so happy to be back. It's been too long, and we will be back again next week. We promise. Yes. And yes. and we'll give you some more murders and lovely commentary. Yes, because we yeah. are so good at it. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, those were our cases this week. We look forward to seeing you guys next week. Follow us on all social medias. And if you have suggestions for cases or things that you feel like have not been covered enough, please email us at- Send them our way. Yeah. Email us uh, at info at murdernotmurdering.com or send me wine. Also, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I mentioned that. Also, um. If you you can DM us too, if you on Instagram, if you are suggesting a case, we've gotten a few that way, and we very much yes. appreciate the feedback. So yeah, that's it for now, and we will see you all next week. Bye, bye.